you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. Hopefully everyone has notes. If not, they are back there on the black shelf. You can grab those very quickly. We're starting today a new section of the Revelation. And if you want to review just the structure of this book, then I'm just going to point you back to the second sermon uh, in this entire series. You go back there in your notes and you can see how this whole book is laid out just chiastically. John has it in seven major sections and then there's the, the epilogue and the prologue. We are starting today a new section, one which deals with seven trumpets of judgment and one which just historically speaking is going to carry us all the way through to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Now, I'm not going to take up a, a whole lot of time today with review. You've got a ton of notes uh, for that purpose. You can do that in, in your own time. I hope you are keeping up with those things. But I do want to take about five minutes as we start out today just to uh, go over some major themes and ideas of the book of the Revelation because these major themes and ideas are just crucial to our right understanding of every part uh, of, of the, the whole of this vision. So just three things. I've got them there for you in your notes. Uh, number one, first word to go in the blank, it's God. God. When I say God, I mean the totality of God. I'm thinking Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity that we just sang about with special emphasis, though, on Christ and on his redemptive work in the gospel. That God is central and supreme. So in the Revelation, it is the glory and the power and the victory, just to name a few things of God that is primarily on display. And it's important that we remember that. Uh, this is a, a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's chiefly about him. And so he is, uh, Christ is, God is the principal object of the vision. So as we look at the various elements that are here in the book, we have to make sure that we are keeping our eyes on the king. This, for example, we came through chapters four and five, that whole throne room scene. It's very easy and seems like that to get wrapped up in the different symbols. They're very important. The elders that are there, the living creatures, the colors that we see coming from the throne. It's easy to get wrapped up in those symbols. But it's important that we remember all of those symbols are in some way magnifying and glorifying the king who is upon the throne. And so we just keep that as a, a chief uh, reminder here. God is central and supreme in the revelation. Uh, number two, there for your notes. Remember Revelation's theme of covenant justice. Justice is the word that goes in the blank. Covenant justice. So Israel, we, we ran through this last week as we unpacked covenantally Romans 9 through 11. Uh, but Israel, by and large, she rejected her Messiah. She rejected Christ. Uh, the old covenant uh, given to Israel by Moses was given to reveal God, to reveal God's holiness, to, to demonstrate the depravity of mankind, to show us that we, we are helpless to, to save ourselves. It was given to instruct us in paths of righteousness and to direct our steps. Ultimately, though, the, the whole law is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And in some way, it points forward to Christ, who is the end of the law, the means of our righteousness, and the means of our restoration to a right relationship uh, before the throne of God. So the law, according to the New Testament, it's, it's a good thing. It's not, there's nothing wrong with the law as long as you use it lawfully. But the law itself was never intended to be an end in and of itself. We don't keep law for the sake of keeping law, but the law, all of it in some way, is pointing forward to 
Jesus Christ the righteous in whom is all of our hope. And that's where Paul came in, in Romans 9-11 through last week. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But of course Israel, she chose the law. She chose the whole temple system in a sort of idolatrous way in the hopes that the keeping of that law would lead to a righteousness. And of course, she failed in that. She rejected Christ, her Messiah, and ultimately crucified him, executed him. And, and for this reason, God, in keeping covenant promise, is sending covenant justice against the unbelievers in Israel. And it's important that we keep that theme because it does affect how we read and understand the revelation. Third thing here. Remember the continual theme of the victory. Victory is the word that goes in the blank. Remember that continual theme of the victory of God's elect. Jews and Gentiles who are saved through the judgment. So some of God's elect, some of the Jews, some of the Gentiles are going to die. In fact, most of them will die during this time period in the first century. Some of them, though, will be preserved alive through the outpouring of the judgment. But all of them, regardless of what end they met, whether they survived that judgment and died of old age down the road somewhere, whether they died in the, the tribulation, right? They're all victorious. All of God's people, regardless of how we meet him, regardless of what we go through in life, we are all gathered around the throne in heaven, in eternity, new heavens, new earth, in victory. And so that theme of the victory of God's elect is something that just runs through the revelation. So those two things, the supremacy of God in the gospel, the judgment and justice poured out on the covenant breakers in Israel, and the ultimate victory and salvation of God's elect to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, those are the prevailing themes in the revelation. So keep those things in mind. Now, that brings us to our consideration of the text in front of us today, which is the introduction for this next major division of the book. And this next major division covers chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. So it's, it's a pretty large section. And this that we have here today, these six verses, are the introduction. And if you'll just remember back to that second sermon, each one of these sections has its own introduction. Some are long, some are short. They do affect, in some way, how we're supposed to understand what's happening in that scene as it unfolds. And so this introduction is very important. As we unpack the text today, there are two central ideas that we're going to get to by the time we come to the third point, and that is the sovereign action of God and the prayers of the saints. You don't have to write anything there. You're, we're going to get there. I got it in your notes. Um, I've cataloged them in this Roman numeral number three. I called them the catalyzing agents in your outlines. But before we get there, we're going to talk about the central actors and the crucial accoutrements that we find here uh, in this portion of the Revelation. I'll just explain why we're doing this. If you've been to our core groups, I have been asking you lately to go past just reading the scripture and to begin actually studying it for yourselves and coming to the place where you understand what you're reading. And to do that, I gave you that little acronym SOAP, right? Scripture, observation, application, prayer. You get your text, you read through it over and over and over again. And you come back and you make your observations. You're looking for the who's that are there, the what's, uh, what's going on, why is this happening, how is it taking place. You're getting the meaning of the text. And then you come to that at A and you begin to apply that to yourself prayerfully. I've been asking you to do that. Well, basically what I'm giving you in these first two points are the who's and the what's. Right? We're going to go through this 
Because these things help us to understand what is going to be coming out of this. So I'll just show you what we're talking about as we get into it. Roman numeral number one, the central actors. These are the, the who's in the text. And I have five of these for you to consider today. And we begin naturally with the, uh, the principal who, which is God. So letter A, God. So God is mentioned in the text specifically as the lamb, verse one, as God in verses two and four. And there's also this allusion to the throne in verse three. That's where God is sitting. That's where the authority of God is emanating forth. So God on the throne, King Jesus and the Lamb, I wrote this for you in your notes, is central to the text. Now, what is the significance of that? Well, without belaboring all of this, we're just going to keep going back to what we've said all along in this series. Nothing happens. Nothing happens in the Revelation. Nothing happens in your life, in my life. Nothing happens in all of creation apart from God's eternal decrees and providential working. Nothing in the universe happens apart from God's direct oversight. Of course, we have probed that out in many different ways. We'll get to it in some more ways today and in the weeks to come. But just right here at the start, I want you to see, again, that God is the chief actor. He's the king, the governor, the sovereign, the Lord over all things. This is one of the central messages of the Revelation, so we don't want to miss this who as we walk through this section. Letter B, the saints. Saints is the word that goes in the blank. The saints. So the saints are mentioned in verses 3 and 4. And these are God's people. These are believers. Uh, and God's people in general, again, I wrote this for you in your notes, continually are in view in the Revelation because... As we've already said, their triumph in Christ is a major theme throughout the Revelation. So well, certainly the Revelation is primarily about God. It's primarily about the gospel. It's primarily about Jesus Christ. It is also very much concerned with the victory and the fidelity of God's people. Uh, we've been saying it since the beginning. This book is not meant to be a puzzle. It's not meant to perplex you and drive you crazy as you try to uh, unpack all of the different symbols and things that we find here. This is meant to encourage you. It's meant to build you up in your faith, uh, to give you the tools that you need to faithfully endure through trouble and trial and tribulation. And so when we see the saints here in the text, we want to make sure that we are taking special note of them. Now, with respect to this passage here, uh, we are talking about a very specific historical group of the saints. Just think back to the sermons that we've already come through. Revelation is rooted in history. It is addressed to a specific group of saints, real saints in real churches living in historical first century uh, Asia. So it's written to them. And it's also addressed concerning Christians living in the land of Israel all over the Roman Empire. And so we have to remember these saints. We divide them into two different subgroups. Number one, I've given this to you in your notes. You don't have anything to write here, but there are the saints in heaven. These are those who are primarily in view in this text, these six verses here today. These are about to begin to realize the justice for which they have been crying out. If you think back to the last section, you heard them crying out for vindication. God, give us justice. How long? And the response came from the throne. Just wait a little while. There's, some, there's other things that have to be filled up first, but justice is coming. These are about to begin to realize the judgment and the justice for which they have been crying out. That's what's going to be unpacked in chapters 8 through 11. And secondly, though, 
even though they're not mentioned here in these six verses, they're going to come out by the time we come to the end of chapter 8 uh, next week. There are the saints on earth. And these are those who are alive at the time of the writing of this revelation. They're made up of the saints in the land. And we think primarily of Jews there. We, we go back to uh, our exegesis of uh, the 144,000 Jews saved and preserved through the coming judgment. But also they are the saints scattered throughout the broader uh, Roman Empire. These are Jews and Gentiles who made up the congregations, not only of the seven churches in Asia, uh, but also of all the churches scattered all over uh, the known world at that time. Most of these people have, are already enduring persecution. They will shortly endure persecution. Many of them will be killed, but at this time, they are alive on earth. In any case, all of these saints in heaven, saints on earth, they are victorious in Christ, their Redeemer, King. Make sure you're keeping that at the forefront. C. This is the third who? The angels. Angels. So angels are mentioned in our present text in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And so they are important here uh, in the unfolding of what God has. Now, so far in this series, we haven't made a huge deal of the angels and the demons that we've seen. And even today, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the doctrines of angelology and demonology and things of that nature. Um, but I do want you to see uh, the importance of this. I wrote it there for you in your notes. God uses his creatures, including angels and demons, to do his work. God could do everything. He could, he could proclaim the gospel in visions and dreams to people. He didn't have to use men in the foolishness of preaching, but he's chosen to use you and me. He's also chosen to use angels and demons. And for that reason, all throughout the scriptures, you see that not only men and women and children, but also angels and demons have a major role to play in this drama of redemption. It's also important for us to remember that the scriptures expressly tell us that our primary enemy is not fleshy. It's not of the flesh. Not to say that the, the human beings in the world are not our enemies. You can't love your enemies if you don't actually have flesh and blood enemies. But our primary enemy is spiritual, right? It's not corporeal. And so the weapons of our warfare have to correspond to those spiritual realities. And so for that reason, uh, the word of God gives us instructions and commands like this one in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, if you want to write down that reference. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And again, Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. It's important to recognize that's not actual armor. We're not actually putting on a helmet. We're not actually putting on a breastplate or carrying a shield and a sword. But that doesn't mean it's not real. These are real and substantial spiritual things. We do adorn ourselves in the salvation of our God. We confront the enemy with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's our confidence in God that is a shield against the enemy. It's our knowledge of the word wielded by the spirit of God within us that gives us power over everything that the devil is throwing at us. So it's not real armor, but it's, no, it's not tangible armor, but it's, not, it's, no, it's no less real for us in our lives. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not the primary enemy. We wrestle against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
If you don't believe that there's real demonic um, evil behind all of the things that we see in our, our culture, you're, you're blinded to what the scripture says is plainly there. Especially in our Western context of post-enlightenment, we, we, just, we tend to downplay spiritual things. We mythologize ideas of angels and demons, and yet the scriptures speak time and time again of God's angels ministering to his people and demons as being behind the temptations that we face, the troubles, the trials. God is using angels and demons, not just here in the Revelation, but in our lives today to bring about his perfect purposes. Specific to our text for today, though, I've listed three things for you there in your notes. We can look at these angels and demons in, in three different ways here. In the text today, we've got, number one, the seven angels. You see those specifically in verse two. These are given trumpets. They're going to summon forth and herald the coming judgments in the next few chapters. And then there is another angel. So he's a, an eighth angel. You read about him in verses three and five. He's ministering in the holy temple and he actually begins the outpouring of God's judgment on the earth. And then as the section progresses, number three, other spiritual forces will arise and we'll look at those in the coming weeks as we come to them. But don't miss the fact that God is using angels and demons to carry out his work and his will in the world. He is the sovereign king, sovereign over all things. It's one of my favorite things about your Mark series. Jesus' authority and power over demons, they fall at his feet. They confess that he is the Lord. They have no power when the king walks into the room. God is in control over all things. D, the inhabitants of the land. I'm thinking here about the unbelievers. Unbelievers goes in the blank. Unbelievers on earth. Now with respect to these six verses, this is of course an implied who, right? It's implied in the fact that judgment is poured out uh, on the earth in verse 5. Because that judgment is poured out on somebody. God doesn't just randomly pour out judgment on earth and sky and and sea. The the whole world is affected, but he pours out judgment because of sin. Because of the sins of people. And so the inhabitants of the land do come into view here by implication. And they are crucial to our understanding of this theme of covenant justice. God is pouring out judgment for a particular purpose. These have been afflicting, they've crucified Christ, and now they're afflicting the people of Christ. Judgment has to come. Justice has to be served. And so we we acknowledge these uh, unbelievers in the land. I've listed out two categories of those for you. Unbelieving Jews. These are the covenant breakers in Israel. They're going to receive judgment for their rejection of Christ, their king. But then also unbelieving Gentiles. Uh, Chiefly, Rome is in view here. These are the instruments of God's justice. So they're tools that God is using to purify Israel, to cut off the unbelievers and to let uh, a pure Israel go through. Um, But as is the case for all of the nations so used by God throughout the Old Testament, we think of Assyria, the rod of God's anger. We think of Babylon, another rod of God's anger. Rome too will be judged for her, her violence against God's people the Jews. So let's, let's not mention those, uh, miss those today. That's the fourth who. Finally, for your, for your notes, we think about the readers. I'm thinking chiefly here about those in the seven churches, but also of all believers. Um, and so I've given you this little phrase. This is something that we, we say generally about all of the books of the Bible, but here in particular, the revelation is written for the whole church 
but it was written to believers in the first century. And it is important that we keep those ideas straight. The Revelation is written for the whole church. You and I come to it today, we're reading it for a reason. It's written by God for us so that we can see who God is, so that Christ can be revealed to us, so that we not, might know how to patiently endure through the tribulations, troubles, trials of our own day. But it wasn't written to us. It was written to seven historical churches that existed in the first century. It was written to them in their context. All of these judgments that are about to unfold are relevant to them. And so we come and we, we, we say things like this. I think I printed it for you in your notes. We must not take from the Revelation a meaning utterly foreign to the original audience. Um, it, it can't mean to us what it could not mean to them. This Revelation cannot mean for us what it could not mean to them. So we have to understand this from their perspective. It's written in an historical context. And so we remember the readers for that reason. They're not in verses 1 through 6. But you have to keep in mind the things that have come before. That first section written to seven uh, churches don't lose hold of all of those things. Roman numeral number two, the critical accoutrements. These are the what's of the text. And I just got four things for you here. Uh, A, the seven-sealed scroll. The seven-sealed scroll. So with our text today, verse 1, uh, the seventh and the final seal is broken on the scroll. I've told you before, I believe this is symbolic of the Old Testament scriptures. I wrote that for you in your notes. And if I am correct, here's something for you to write. This breaking of the final seal, the opening of the scroll, signifies covenant fulfillment. Covenant fulfillment. Let me just give you the, the imagery here. I think most people that have ever read talk about the Revelation see the seals being broken as if Christ breaks a seal and he's able then to unroll a piece of the scroll and read from it. And he breaks another seal and he unrolls another piece, reads from it, and that's what's happening in the seals. I don't see it that way. Uh, this is a scroll sealed with seven seals. He's breaking a seal and things happen on earth breaking another seal, more things happen. Breaking a seal, things happen in heavens. Here we come to the seventh seal and now the scroll is ready to be opened. All seven are broken. There's nothing left hindering this thing. And so as this scroll unrolls, we're about to see the judgment written be fulfilled on Israel. Now this is important because everybody wants to focus on the promises of God that are good. And you want to ignore the promises of God for judgment. Let's just to be clear, that's where we want to be. God's promised land. He's got to give land. God's promised blessing. He's got to give blessing. God also promised cursing. God promised judgment. And so these judgments that are going to be poured out are just as important redemptively as the promise of salvation. Christ brings the fullness of all of the promises. He dies on the cross for our sins to take away the sins of his people. We'll never face that judgment because he faced it for us. But even that's a fulfillment of promise. God decreed judgment for our sin, for my sin, for your sin. If you're, if you're sitting here today and you got faith in Jesus Christ, he lives within you. Your sin has been judged in Christ. But there's no such thing as sin just being ignored, swept under the rug. The death of Christ is the judgment of God upon your sin. So God gives salvation through Jesus Christ, but he also, for those who do not have faith in him, whose sins were not paid for on the cross, they will pay for their sins 
this judgment and justice is being poured out as a covenant fulfillment, an answer to God's promise. Now the significance here of this leading into this, we're starting a new section today. We had six seals broken in the last section. Here with the seventh one broken in this section. It's just significant as we keep in mind the continuity of the whole. In other words, we're still in the throne room. God is still on the throne. We haven't left the throne room as we come into this new section. So the fact that this scroll is still here in the vision, about to be broken in this new section, says God is still on the throne. Keep your eyes still fixed on God. B, the seven trumpets. Uh, don't have anything for you to write here, but I wrote a lot of things for you in your notes for you to keep up with. Uh, we've mentioned trumpets generally in past sermons. I showed you that in the Old Testament and in the New, trumpets are connected with uh, three things. With the coming of God, to clarity. Right? There's a clarion call whenever the trumpet is blown. Uh, and then there's the demand for action. And these trumpets fulfill all of those expectations. The judgments that are heralded and summoned forth uh, by these angels, that is God's judgment upon the land. He's coming in judgment on Israel. Uh, Two, at their, at their sounding, there is clarity about the judgment that is coming. God wants his people who are faithful to be warned and to flee from the wrath to come. And so there is this also this demand for action. The righteous must take action. They must flee from the wrath to come, deliver themselves, believe in Christ. So these trumpets are important for the overall theme of the revelation. C, and I need you to pay very close attention here because this is the heart and soul of, of our text today. The temple and the hour of prayer. So I've listed for you in your notes a number of textual things. You'll see there one, two, three, four, five, six. The altar, the golden censer, uh, the incense, uh, the golden altar. So there's two alt- altars here. Uh, the holy fire. And then I've also listed the silence, about half an hour of it. And I've listed all of these things together. I wrote this for you in your notes. I wrote them together because together all of these are part of one image. And it is an image with which a first century audience would have been all too familiar. And that image is of the temple at the hours of prayer. Now for context, you'll notice there are bullet points in your notes. I've given you references for a host of Old Testament passages where the details of Revelation 1 through 8 find their root. I've also given you the reference of a passage in Luke where you can see this sort of thing, the temple and the hour of prayer worked out in the life of John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. You'll remember he's ministering in the temple when the angel comes and he gets the vision that says you're going to have a son. His wife is barren, but now you're going to have a son, John the Baptist. John's going to be his name. He's in there for the, the hour of prayer. The people, you'll remember, man, he's taken a long time. There is this expectation of a certain time that's going to elapse Go there in Luke. You can find that. Um, also, uh, I've given you just a, a reference from Alfred Edersheim. He's a, a Jewish uh, historian. Um, the temple and its ministry and services as they were at the time of Christ. I've given you a quote there. I'm not going to read all of those Old Testament references today. I'm, I'm giving them to you because I want you to be good Berean Christians. I want you to be able to do like the, the church in Berea did when Paul came preaching the gospel. They went to the scriptures and they search to see whether or not those things are so. So I'm going to describe the scene. I'm going to describe what some of these things are because I think that's going to be most beneficial for us. And you can go back and check me on it. 
there are the references there in your notes. Well, let's just run through the list very quickly. Uh, these are all temple things. Uh, first of all, the altar. The altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar. I did a very mm, interesting job over here on the board illustrating some of these things. <clears throat> um, but you've got this uh, brazen altar all the way on the left. This is the altar of sacrifice. You can see my makeshift steps going up to it where the priest would climb those steps and, and offer the sacrifices. Um, that's there written about in Exodus 27. If you look into the holy place, that's this section of the, the front room of the temple, the tabernacle. You've got a golden altar of incense right in front of the veil, that dividing line between. Right? You can read about that in Exodus chapter 30. There's the censer that comes up here in the Revelation. I've given you passages in Leviticus to talk about that. Yeah, that's those little orange things laying beside the altar down here at the bottom. These are just the tools that the priests would use uh, in their ministrations of the temple. There's incense. It's not written over here on the board, but God had a very special formulation of incense that was going to be offered in the temple. You were not allowed to mix this stuff and use it in your home. God would kill you for this. This is holy stuff. It had to follow a very specific pattern. It was used in the worship of the temple on that altar of incense. Also, I've given you in your notes, holy fire. Holy fire was ignited by God in the Old Testament. So you go back, I've given you the references there. They've finished the temple. The priest Aaron and his sons have been, have been anointed. And then they lay sacrifices on the altar. And that big pillar of fire that is the glory of God comes out and consumes that sacrifice. But that fire was commanded by God to be kept burning. The priest didn't come and light a new fire every day. This was God's holy fire ignited by him. The, the message is clear. You don't get to lift up your works upon the consumption of God of the sacrifices. He is doing it. You use holy fire. This is why later on you'll see Moses' sorry, Aaron's two oldest sons consumed by God. Because they go in to burn some incense and they pull out their matches or they get their flint stones and they start knocking them together and they create man-made fire. And God's like, no strange fire. And he, he burns them alive. You have to sanctify God as holy. You don't lift up the works of man on the altar of God. And so there's this holy fire that is burning on that altar. It's stained with the blood of the sacrifices, with the fat of the lambs and the things that were altar, offered there. This is holy, holy, holy fire. I've also mentioned for you in your notes there the silence. I'll get to what, I, what Edersheim says the silence is. But I did list something that, that came up very interestingly as I was studying this. In the Greek Septuagint, that's not the Hebrew Old Testament, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The first time that this word silence is used shows up in Exodus 14, 14. And in that context, Israel's got its back against the wall at the Red Sea. And God says, stand still, be silent, hold your peace. I will fight for you. Stand still, hold your peace and see the salvation of the Lord. That's the context of the very first appearance of this word in the Greek Old Testament. I don't know what that might have meant, what kind of a difference that might have made uh, for the, the original readers, but I know for the Jews, it's, it's powerful. It's very important. The, the first appearance of a word in the, in the scriptures is important for them. And so in the context of what is about to be unfolding here, Wait, I'm going to give justice. I'm going to pour out judgment. You wait on me. I will fight for you, is what that text says. And of course, Edersheim has another idea about this silence, and it has to do with the hour of prayer in the temple. 
So let's just talk about what that looked like. Uh, one of the priests, they would draw the priest by lot, would go and take that little fire pan that I pointed to on the board over there. It's a censer. And he would take coals from off of the altar. Again, you cannot light the incense in that temple with anything but those coals. That represents, that's a fire lit by God, and it's, it's covered in the, the, the blood of the sacrifices. So that priest, he would take those coals into uh, the sanctuary. He'd trim the fire on the, the lampstand. He would lay those coals in order on the golden altar of incense. And then he would put that incense on top of the coals and it would fill the room with smoke. I did try this, by the way. I got a little incense burner. I got coals and I got frankincense to put on the thing. And I, I could only leave the burner in the house for about 30 seconds because it smoked the whole place up, this white smoke. But in the Old Testament, I need you to see the imagery here. The priest could not go into the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the high priest could go in there. But most of the time, nobody goes into that very throne room of God where the glory of God was concealed by the veil. But every day, twice a day, as the priest would go and he would light this incense, that cloud, which represents the prayers of the saints, would go up over the top of that veil. So even when men didn't have access to God, the prayers of the saints always did. The prayers of the saints, sanctified by the blood-stained holy fire, had access to God continually even in the Old Testament. So that's what's being played out here. The angel's going to get this fire. This incense is going to be lit. All of this together is coming and pointing this picture to the, the temple and the hour of prayer. I've given you a quote there. I'm going to read it. It is this most solemn period when throughout the vast temple buildings, deep silence rested upon the worshiping multitude. He, he goes on another place to describe it as about half an hour. While within the sanctuary itself, the priests laid the incense on the golden altar and the cloud of odors rose up before the Lord, which serves as an image of heavenly things. This is what I think is going on here in this introduction of Revelation. You'll remember we've, we've shown time and again that the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple of God in Jerusalem, it was just an image, a mirror of the true heavenly sanctuary. We're here now in the true heavenly sanctuary. But whereas all of these things are a picture, it stands to reason that what happens, what God has commanded to take place, is also a mirror of the functions that are going on in the heavenly places. Now we go to Hebrews, right? Hebrews says, those things were purified with the bloods of bulls and goats that could never really make anybody holy. But the, the things in heaven, the true had to be purified with better sacrifices. And so we have here the altar of sacrifice stained by the blood of Jesus Christ the righteous, burning continually with holy fire. These are the same coals that Isaiah's lips are going to be purged with in the Old Testament. It's never had the blood of bulls and goats lifted up. It's just Jesus' blood stained with the love of his sacrifice, his judgment, his justice, right? That's what's going on in this portion of the revelation. It's the temple, the hour of prayer, the incense being burned. Don't miss that. It's the third what? Final thing really quickly. <clears throat> Thunder, rumblings, lightning, and earthquake. Revelation is a highly symbolic book. Um, this symbolic language is not difficult to interpret. We've talked about it many times already. These words are used consistently in the Old Testament to point divisions of God's coming in judgment. 
Judgment. Judgment is the word that goes in the blank. Now just for clarity's sake, the fact that this is symbolic language does not preclude God's also writing these things in events on earth. I think historically we can anchor what's happening here in these first six verses. In AD 66, between the Feast of Pentecost and before the start of the Feast of Trumpets, AD 66, right? We've already shown in past sermons, we're going to see in sermons coming up as we go through these things, that earthquakes, massive earthquakes, were the, were the telltale sign that coming was judgment. Judgment was coming in that year. Um, storms, I mean, raining blood uh, out of the sky. These things were happening in AD 66. Historians are writing about them. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. The fact is this language, whether written in the text of Scripture or written in the heavens above, or something that the Jews should have recognized. They should have seen these signs and the earthquakes and the noise and the voices and said judgment is coming. God is about to fulfill his promises. We need to repent and believe. But that's what this is. This is an indicator of judgment. And that brings us to what is the main substance of the text, these catalyzing agents. Just two things here. Roman numeral numeral number three. The free act of God. We read in verse 1 that the Lamb opened the seventh seal. And when the Lamb lamb does this, that's when everything starts to happen. Uh, You see angels standing up, right? Trumpets are given to them. And the connotation is that God is the one that gives the trumpets. All authority in heaven and on earth belong to the Lamb before the throne, right? And so these trumpets are given by God. Another angel, that eighth angel, comes to the heavenly sanctuary. Again, he's given by God incense to offer, much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. And just again, to go to that imagery, this incense coupled with those, that holy fire from off of the altar is what sanctifies the prayers of the saints, right? <clears throat> so prayers are caused, prayers are sanctified, prayers are received, and judgment is being poured out because of the free act of God. And none of this begins to happen if God doesn't first act. If the Lamb of God who puts on flesh doesn't act, then none of the, the promises of God begin to be fulfilled. None of the judgments that were foretold in the Scriptures come to pass. God is the foundation and the ground, the root and the substance of everything that is unfolding in the Revelation. He is sovereign. He is the Almighty. He's the Creator. He's the King. He decrees all things whatsoever come to pass. Uh, his His word, his promises, his plans. Nobody can stop those things. He moves in his perfect time. His plan is always perfect. But when the time comes, he moves. And when he moves, things happen. And so for your notes here, for you to write, what comes out in these lines comes out as the result of God's free and sovereign act. Free and sovereign act. And why is that important? All glory to God. That's why it's important. Nothing happens that is not directly related to God's decrees, His providence in the world. Justice comes, give glory to God. Salvation comes, give glory to God. He is the catalyst in all of these things. B, though, the prayers of the saints. All of that, we just said, being true. God is, 
He's got to move. He's got to decree. He's got to act. Everything is dependent upon him. He's sovereign over all things. He's the ultimate mover behind everything that happens in heaven and on earth. Still, the saints are responsible. The saints are responsible to act in obedience to God's command. So just two things for you to write here. If God doesn't act, none of the good stuff that we're reading about even begins to happen. It's all dependent. Dependent is the word that goes in the blank. It's all dependent upon him. And yet, at the same time, if God's people do not move in obedience, obedience is the word that goes in that second blank. God's people do not move in obedience to his commands. In this case, if they don't pray, then none of the good redemptive judgment and justice comes either. And so we look at the prayers of the saints and see them as a catalyzing agent of what is coming. And I need you to understand, herein lies one of the great complexities of the faith. Everything depends on God. If you're having faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, you're a believer you are counting on Christ to make you righteous. You're going to share in this table later counting on His righteousness, not the fact that you've lived a good life this week. Right. You're, you're gathered here in holiness and righteousness. Do you get that? Think of the week that you've lived and how you haven't loved God perfectly and all the ways that you failed, but you're righteous and holy, perfectly sanctified today in who you are because of Him. Amen. And yet, you're called to be holy. You're called to put sin to death. And so there is this constant interplay in the scriptures, this this tension between strive. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you are living it up in sin, don't count on salvation. But if you're trusting anything other than the works of Christ, don't count on salvation. That is an incredible tension. It's all on him but I need to work out the righteousness that he's given to me. I've got to come after him to read the word. I've got to come after him to pray. God has decreed that judgment and justice is going to come to pass. But if these saints aren't crying out, judgment and justice doesn't come to pass. Now, ultimately, they can't fail to pray because he's decreed that they will. I don't know how to really break that down and explain it. It's all on God, but what you do matters. That is the tension of the faith proclaimed in the scriptures and we just we live with it we believe it and we pursue holiness <coughs> sorry we'll wrap this up with the continual applications what is it what does all of this mean for us right, God is acting if he doesn't act if he doesn't move then the judgments and the justice it doesn't come out but if we don't pray, that doesn't happen either. Souls aren't saved if we don't pray. We're not sanctified if we don't pray. Attention. Two things for you here. A, the vital need of prayer. The vital need for prayer. The whole context of this passage today is zeroed in on this issue of prayer. The language of this places us squarely in the temple at the hour of prayer. We're in the throne room, right? This is reminiscent of the earthly ministration of the prayers of the saints being offered before God. And this says to us that prayer is important. All of Israel would gather together around waiting for this 
incense to rise and start coming out of the sides of the tabernacle and the temple. That priest would come out and then they would begin to set into those daily uh, rituals of prayer, crying out to God. They had specific prayers that they would pray as a congregation in one voice uh, to God as they prayed for blessing, as they prayed for faithfulness. But we were confronted here with a vital need for prayer. God's people must pray. If I were to ask you what discipline is probably the most difficult, you might not say prayer, but we've, we've proven over the last few weeks it is one of the most difficult things for you and I to do as Christians. Over the last month or so, we've asked you just to cultivate that life of prayer. Give 10 minutes to God every single day in prayer. And without fail, many of us have had a hard time giving God 10 solid, devoted minutes to prayer. It seems so fruitless. I could be solving this problem, and here I am just talking about it. Here I am just praying. Here I am just sending these petitions up to God, and yet God's people must pray. We may not be able to explain why. I've got some good ideas why. But ultimately, prayer is just our total dependence upon God. And so God's people must pray. Judgment is going to be done. Salvation is going to be accomplished. But God also uses he uses angels. He uses demons. He uses men and women. He uses our prayers. There are people out there who need to hear the gospel, and he expects us as a church to come together, not just giving to send missionaries, not just going out and telling. Certainly we have to do those things. But we got to pray. Me preparing a sermon and having the facts laid out straight is, is useless if God is not working in the sermon as it is being preached. And we have to pray for that. God, open the understanding of my heart that I might hear the word of God, that it might be rightly applied, that it might make sense to me. We pray for those things. I mean, I can't tell you the, the number of times that we've, we've preached the gospel from the pulpit and, I mean, years. And then we, we come to a situation down the road where we're sitting down with a, uh, a couple and we're counseling and we come to the heart of the gospel. Well, I've never heard that before. I mean, honestly, um, we're all different. But the fact is, these are spiritual things, and only by prayer does the Word of God get in here. You can go through the motions of Bible reading all you want. You can go through proclaiming the gospel to the lost, but if you don't pray, nothing happens. If you don't pray, nothing happens. And so God's people have to pray. You want to see growth in this church spiritually? you got to pray. If you want to see your children growing up to love Christ, and do right things. You have to pray for them. Yes, there are things you're going to do, but you've got to pray, number one, because prayer is this position of total dependence upon God. God's people must pray. And then number two thing that I've written for you in your notes, there's power in prayer. We, we can't explain it. God can do what He wants to do. He knows our needs before uh, we ask Him. The, the Bible says this, but then the Bible also says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous Man has great power as it's working, right? You're praying, and that is powerful with God. And he says, all things whatsoever you ask, believing in prayer in my name, you're going to receive it. Right? Dad preached Psalm 37 the other way. Delight yourself also in the Lord. He's going to give you the desires of your heart. These are certain powerful promises that we have in the Scripture. There is power in prayer. I can't really explain I know that biblically God doesn't change. God's not growing. His character doesn't change. He's not learning new stuff. He's not watching your life and saying, oh, I never thought about that before. 
He's not reacting redemptively. God does not change. And yet we go to the Old Testament. God's dead set on destroying Israel from some new sin. And there's Moses standing in the gap in prayer. God, don't destroy them for your name's sake. Don't do it. And the Bible says God changes his heart. Did God actually change? I don't know. He was never going to destroy them. And yet he was. That's the tension again that we, we have to live with in the scripture. Prayer is powerful. There are needs in your life that God wants to meet and will meet, but he won't meet if you don't pray. There are lost people in your life that God may want to save and he, want to, he wants to use you, but he's not going to save until you start praying. You have to pray. There is power in prayer. And we believe that prayer changes things. Third thing there, prayer changes things. Prayer doesn't actually change God, as we've said. But scripture, scripture demonstrates that God moves in response to prayer. These first century readers are seeing this pattern unfolded. God's people have been praying. And this specifically is pointing to the judgment that's about to come out. It is an answer to their prayers. Yes, it is a fulfillment of God's eternal purposes. But it's also an answer to their prayers. As a prayer does change things. When someone is sick in your life and you're crying out to God in prayer, you have to believe that that, 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 that can change things. If, God, if it is God's will, prayer changes things. There are needs that need to be met. You must believe that God can, if it is His will, change those things. Prayer does change things. We have to be confident in that. But I think most fundamentally, this fourth thing that I wrote for you, prayer changes us. Prayer does change us. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. He starts out with, Our Father who are in heaven, holy, 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 hallowed be your name. Give me the grace to treat your name as sacred and ultimate. Conform my will to your glory. What's the next thing? Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. So we got this, this whole list of things that we come to God with in prayer. And the first thing God says is, let my will control. And so we come back to why God can say in, in Psalm 37, you just delight in me, I'll give you everything that your heart desires. Because when you come to God prayerfully delighting in him, your desires change. Prayer changes us. God may not take away the cancer that you're, you're wrestling with. But it'll give you a heart to be faithful through it. God may not take away that financial burden that you're wrestling with, but he'll give you the grace to go through it. He might change your circumstances. He might not, but he will change you. Prayer is essential. Something's going to change. Your circumstances will change or your perspective will change. But prayer is essential in that process. God's people have to pray. We've got to be a praying people. If we, if we hope and intend to see anything happen for the gospel through this church in the lives of our children, we have got to be people who pray. Who pray for one another. Who pray in our marriages. Who pray for missions. Who pray for the gospel. We have to pray. Please don't let these exhortations that we've been giving to one another over the last months go in vain. Cultivate that prayer life. Depend upon God in your prayer life. Believe that God is working through your prayers. He's saying that to these readers in the first century. He's saying it to us today. If you don't pray, things don't happen. You don't have, he says through James, because you don't ask. Right? You've got to be a people who pray. Who pray. Final thing here. The vital need of total dependence upon God. Coming back to that tension. You have to live here with this. A 
Apart from God, you can't do anything, right? And prayer demonstrates <clears throat> that total dependence. Right? You, can't, you can't heal your sick loved one. You can't heal your own body. You, sometimes you can't provide for the needs that you have. God can. And prayer teaches us to come before God in total humility. It really doesn't make sense to us why we should sit on the porch for an hour and cry out to God to, to mend broken relationships. To cry out to God to save that child who's out in sin. That loved one who desperately needs the gospel. It doesn't make sense that we would sit there for hours and cry out to God rather than going out and doing something productive. And yet, the scripture teaches that more is accomplished in some hours of prayer than is accomplished with all of your efforts combined. That is not to say that we don't, we don't work and pursue holiness and we don't proclaim the gospel. We do. But we can do that all day long without prayer. There's nothing. Prayer brings us to this place of total dependence upon God. These saints, their souls under the altar crying out, Lord, how long? Give us justice. Give us vindication. They're helpless. But they're trusting in the God who will change their circumstance, who will answer their prayer, who will begin to pour out justice and judgment on the world. That same God is hearing your prayers today. We don't still light incense in a temple, but we have an advocate with the Father constantly standing before Him, the blood of Christ burning on that altar, sweet-smelling savor, and you can go to God anytime. You can approach the throne of grace at any time to find exactly what you need. God is there for His people, and we ought to be, we must be, dependent upon Him for everything. That's what this introduction is teaching us. As we see trumpets blown, as we see judgments coming out, it's the answer to prayer. It's, it's the result of a, a people totally dependent upon their God for their salvation and their vindication. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this good day that you've given us. We do thank you for the, the hour of prayer to which you've brought us now. We want to be a people of prayer. We're going to prepare in just a little bit to share in this table of the Lord. And I pray for your blessings in it. I pray that we would truly...